Welcome to another episode of the Deborah Health Report, where we dive into current health and medical topics to keep the Delaware Valley informed and updated. The conversation continues with pulmonologist Dr. Howard Waxman as we highlight treating, managing, and even slowing the progression of COPD. Here's Rasa Kay. Hi, I'm Rasa Kay, and we continue our discussion of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a condition primarily caused by other lung diseases together or separately that are the result of prolonged exposure to harmful particles or gases. In our first segment, Deborah pulmonologist Dr. Howard Waxman explained how COPD develops and how it's diagnosed and staged. COPD is an umbrella term in many ways, so as we delve into treatment, we ask Dr. Waxman how the underlying lung diseases underpin a patient's COPD profile. Not so much in the staging. The staging is more just looking at, as much as I would hate to say it, little checkboxes, features of the disease uh, and of its measurement. And that's actually independent of the cause. On the other hand, if the person has another coexisting problem, uh, and here's where, as with all things in medicine, the answer is often it's complicated because if you're talking about a patient who actually was asthmatic and had progression of asthma to a chronic form of airflow obstruction, you're not going to use the gold system at all. You're going to use the National Asthma Education Program's scoring of how we describe asthma. So when it comes to COPD, we're generally applying those categories for chronic bronchitis and emphysema. And we're doing so based on certain features that are descriptive, but not prognostic. So we talked about the difference between COPD and asthma. Let's talk about that COPD if you never smoked. That -hmm. would be more from the exposure or the genetic. Does it present the same way? Uh, It presents younger, perhaps between 30 and 55, as opposed to largely being uh, middle age and above. Uh, Certainly the genetic ones are going to typically present younger. With the exposures, part of the trick is recognizing that it took place. Not all people are going to realize that they may have had some form of chemical or particulate exposure. Uh, It's also important to distinguish between that and other forms of occupational lung disease because many of those will present with cough and shortness of breath. And that's not the same thing as saying that they have COPD. So essentially, those people will show up with those two symptoms and only after they've had investigations with x-rays, perhaps CAT scans, pulmonary function studies, and a physical exam, only then can you decide what did their occupation do to them, if anything. Uh, It's also important to realize that there are other diseases that can present where the symptoms may be similar, but it's not actually lung disease. Many patients with heart failure, for example, will have shortness of breath, activity limitation, uh, and some cough. Uh, So again, the first step is always going to be the same, regardless of which cause it is, largely because people don't show up at the doctor saying, hi, I have COPD, treat me. They show up saying, doc, my breathing doesn't feel so good. And you have to consider a large range of possibilities. So the first step in evaluating these people is the same no matter what they've got. A thorough history, including home environment, occupational environment, social habits with smoking, as well as a careful physical exam. When would COPD send you to the hospital? First of all, you're never going to tell any individual that if you're feeling real distress that you should stay home. 
So it's important to understand that no matter what advice is given to a patient, if they are afraid and don't know what to do, then the answer is get medical attention and get it at a place that can deliver that attention. So for example, if you are in severe distress, your doctor's office is the wrong place to be. Okay, it's the ER or at least an urgent care center. On the other hand, if it's a person who has an established diagnosis where they know that they have asthma or COPD or one of these other conditions, one of the things that they hopefully have already been taught to do is to self-medicate with some inhaled drugs that open up the airway and are supposed to give them relief which they will use on an as-needed basis if they develop symptoms. So an accelerating pattern of need or inadequate relief from their rescue medication should always prompt urgent medical attention. So again, you, you just started talking about the diagnosis. What is the experience then for a patient who comes in with this cough they can't shake or mm. any of the other symptoms that uh, we talked about? First, get a good history. A good amount of medical diagnostics relates to information gathering and not necessarily testing. Testing is something that generally should be done to confirm a suspicion, but not because you're simply casting a wide net trying to uh, find out what's wrong with the patient. So a good careful history is important. Then on exam, you may hear wheezing. You may hear mucus rattling around in the chest. The configuration of the chest may change in smokers where it tends to uh, assume a more overinflated barrel-shaped configuration. You may look for other diseases as well, signs of heart failure, water retention, abnormal heart sounds, and things like that. So those physical findings will then guide you into testing. Testing generally is going to start with a simple breathing test where you blow in a machine and the device measures lung capacity and airflow in a way that tells us whether the airways are narrow. Are they so narrow, for example, that the airways are shutting down where air is now trapped in the lung and the lungs actually cannot deflate properly because the airways are so narrow? Uh, we can also measure the efficiency with which oxygen is absorbed into the bloodstream, and that often correlates with the destruction of lung tissue that you might see in emphysema. Other testing, so for example, x-rays and CAT scans, are going to be used partly to exclude other medical conditions, and partly they're going to be used based on what the risk factor might have been. So for example, if you have a patient who you think has COPD from tobacco use, you're probably going to obtain a CAT scan of their chest at some point, not to confirm the diagnosis, but because they need screening for lung cancer as well as testing for their COPD. So in that person's case, the CAT scan kind of gives you a twofer because you can confirm the destructive changes that their smoking may have had, but you're also looking to exclude a diagnosis of lung cancer. You may at some point obtain things like EKGs and cardiac tests, partly also because if smoking was their risk factor, then it may have created heart disease and other conditions that are uh, amplifying their symptoms. And unfortunately, there are plenty of people who have coexisting problems uh, simultaneously. But the basics are the physical exam and some of those breathing tests. So then how is COPD managed and treated once you get to that diagnosis? Well, I'm going to start with the unappreciated stuff. One of the least discussed subjects is physical fitness and rehabilitation. There's a natural tendency that people have when they're breathless to limit their activity. I get short of breath when I exert myself, so I better not overdo it. Now, that may be a good idea in perhaps cardiac disease, 
So if you have chest pain, you're going to be told, take it easy until we evaluate and treat your heart condition. And that's because you have the very real fear that if you push through, you're going to aggravate your condition. Luckily, there's no such thing as a lung attack. There's heart attacks, but there's no lung attacks. If you get breathless with exertion and you have COPD, it just means that you have to slow down and do things at a more sustainable pace. But what you should absolutely not do is avoid physical activity. And it's the very basis for what we do in pulmonary rehabilitation programs, where we try to improve both muscle strength and endurance, and it has been shown to improve symptoms, quality of life, reduce the likelihood that you're gonna have a flare up and end up in the hospital. And unfortunately, it is underutilized. I throw that one out there only because it's not appreciated in terms of how much of an impact it can really have on a person's life. Obviously, we also use medication that tries to uh, reduce the defect itself, things to open up the airways and to reduce any inflammation and mucus production. Mostly those drugs are inhaled. It's a lot safer to inhale them than to take them as a pill. And essentially we have three categories when it comes to the inhaled medications. There are a lot of different brands out there on the market. There's plenty of different pharmaceutical companies that each have their take on it. But by and large, the drugs are equivalent in terms of their benefit. And it's just a question of which one might be on your insurance, which one is perhaps easier to inhale depending on the device's design and so on. So we have those. And then there are certain oral medications that are occasionally used in specific subcategories of COPD. For example, the chronic bronchitis patients may utilize certain medications that try to reduce mucus production and things like that. One thing that people need to know for reassurance, for no other reason than just to not get uptight about it, is that for the most part, every insurance will cover at least one drug in each category of medications, not just for lung disease, but for many different diseases. Some of them will be annoyed when they get that uh, message from their insurance, this drug isn't covered, either because they feel as if they're settling for second best and you have to reassure them, no, this is just a different brand. It's like switching from Coke to Pepsi. You may have a personal preference, but they're basically the same thing. And some of them just don't realize when they see advertisements or hear about other medications that they are essentially just interchangeable substitutes. And so it's actually pretty important for people to keep track of their insurance formulary and make sure that they're not married to a particular brand so much as making sure that they're on the right drug and that they're not ending up in the poorhouse just because their insurance has a particular uh, uh, formulary of drugs that they prefer. So it's actually pretty important for people to be aware of what's covered and to realize that what they need should be covered. It's just that it may not be the brand that they saw on TV or the brand that they used to use in the past. Uh, so patient education also extends into learning a little bit about your insurance. So when you get that notification from the insurance company, it's time to call you back and say, all right, said not this one, which one Correct. are you gonna fix me up with? Right. And lastly, there are supportive things that don't directly treat the COPD, but treat the symptoms. Supplemental oxygen, again, not for symptoms, but for low oxygen levels. Certain devices that help people expel mucus more effectively so that they don't get plugged up. It's a multi-pronged approach where you're looking at clearing the airways, opening the airways, reducing the inflammation, improving the physical fitness of the body. And so it has to be a more global, holistic approach, not a limited one. 
Can you reverse COPD at any stage, even at the gold yeah. stage of zero? Again, the answer is sort of, because if you have someone who's a smoker and they quit, the inflammation that's going on in the airways will regress. Some of the mucus production will subside and you may see improvements in lung function, not because the destructive changes have repaired themselves. That you cannot do, but you can reduce some of the bronchial irritability, spasticity, and inflammation. And so those people may see an improvement in some of their symptoms and function. What has COVID's impact been on the development, the management, the whole issue of COPD? It is not a disease that triggers COPD itself. It certainly hits COPD patients harder. But to say that is a little bit of a statement of what is self-evident. Pretty much any serious infection is going to affect people with chronic medical conditions more severely. So for example, COVID hospitalization and COVID death is more likely to occur if you're older, if you have heart disease, if you have lung disease, if you have diabetes or kidney failure. So in terms of COPD patients, COVID has a disproportionate impact on that population, but not because of features that are unique to COVID necessarily. On the other hand, serious respiratory infection is a real concern in anyone with COPD. So an RSV infection, a COVID infection, influenza, all of the big viral infections that we talk about and try to prevent are going to be more likely to cause serious disease in a patient with COPD. So let's hear your plug for vaccinations. It's important to do a little bit of patient education whenever you talk about a vaccine. The effectiveness of a vaccine can be viewed in a couple of different ways. The first is, does it prevent the disease? And for some of the diseases against which we vaccinate people, that's our goal. Measles, mumps, smallpox, things like that. On the other hand, there are some vaccines where we view success in two ways, preventing the disease or minimizing the disease or both. And so, for example, with COVID, we know that the virus has been mutating quickly enough that it's been difficult to stay a step ahead when it comes to the vaccine. But we do have pretty good proof that the COVID vaccine either prevents disease in some, but more importantly, mitigates the disease in most. And so when you take a look, for example, at who gets hospitalized nowadays with COVID, it's either the unvaccinated or the people who are frail and have coexisting medical conditions where the vaccine or any preventive efforts may be less effective. So yeah, we do strongly encourage uh, when it comes to COVID, but we also do with influenza. There's a reason why most vaccination programs for the flu are targeted at high-risk populations. There's also now an RSV vaccine. It received approval and has gone into distribution over the past several months. Unlike COVID and influenza, the RSV vaccine is a one-off vaccination. It's a once-in-a-lifetime shot because that virus does not mutate and shift to evade the immune benefits of uh, vaccination. So that one can be done pretty much at any time of year, even though RSV does have a seasonal component, just like influenza. With COVID, the boosters are gonna be updated the same way that the flu shot is updated. And so the way to think of your annual flu shot is that essentially it's a booster, but it's one where we have looked at what the recent strains of influenza are like, 
and modified the vaccine accordingly. And the same thing is going to be happening with COVID. To the degree that COPD is something you're going to be managing as opposed to getting over, is there a depression factor here? Certainly. And that's not unique to COPD. The problem with COPD, I think, is that you have to avoid the self-blame. You, you don't want people to start looking at themselves as if, okay, this is my fault. Okay, whether it was, whether it was your behavior that contributed to it or not, is no longer helpful. So really what you have to do is you have to try to make them feel empowered. And that's one of the other things that you do as part of pulmonary rehabilitation, for example, is when you're doing disease education, you're doing it because you want to give people a sense of control. You want to give them a sense of optimism that I might not be able to get rid of this, but I am in control of my body and I can do things to make myself healthier. Now, when it comes to real depression, the unfortunate truth is that most of the time it is perhaps not neglected, but inadequately managed because, to be very blunt, most pulmonologists aren't psychologists. And so recognizing who is depressed and who needs referral and assistance and either counseling or pharmacologic help for depression is important. And that's actually incorporated into many of the assessment tools that we use for COPD, some of which are used in rehab programs, some of which are used in the office setting. Um, but it is a very necessary and important part of management is the recognition of that. Your top list of preventative measures. It's not really unique to COPD. It's just about encouraging people to adopt a healthy lifestyle. First of all, because not everyone will do this, take your workplace environment seriously. The number of times I've heard people tell me, for example, that they were offered respiratory protection at work, but they couldn't get the job done well if they actually wore the mask. Yeah, I'm sorry, but there's a reason why you were offered the mask. And again, it's not that you want to make people think that there's an invisible killer out there, but if OSHA, if your employer, if the industry itself tells you you need to take certain precautions, take them. It's interesting, however, in hindsight, how many people when they're in the office will talk to me about their occupation and yet they won't talk to me about their smoking because they're looking to say, well, could it have been because of a dusty environment at work and so on? And the answer, of course, is yes, but you still have to uh, you know, take care of your own house first and make sure that your own behavior is health promoting. Your genetics, you can't fix, obviously. And so it's more that if there's a family history of lung disease, then you might want to be more circumspect. But the same thing might be true of someone with a family history of asthma. If you're coughing or wheezing or breathless, and you know that you have multiple asthmatic family members, it's probably not COPD, but it's a fair bet that you have inherited their predisposition. Uh, and so you should at least seek medical attention. But there's, there's very little out there in the way of active prevention. It's more passive prevention by avoiding high-risk situations. Why should people come to Deborah for COPD treatment? And, and you've got some bragging rights. Yes, we're rated as a high performer by U.S. News for COPD. It's mostly, I think, that we do have a multitude of services available to us. We run a pulmonary rehabilitation program. We have an active lung cancer screening program. Uh, we have physicians who are experienced in managing these kinds of patient population. We have kind of an integrated approach because 
at least the main risk factor in the form of smoking, tends to also cause heart and vascular disease. So we have the ability to deliver a team effort at managing the multitude of illnesses that can be impacted by smoking if they have more than just their COPD. So I, I think we take a fairly broad approach where we are able to accurately diagnose it and then uh, provide the counseling and the services that people need. That's Deborah pulmonologist Dr. Howard Waxman. Join us for our next Deborah Health Report on a health issue we should all understand for ourselves and our loved ones. The next podcast drops the first Wednesday of the month. I'm Rasa Kay. You can always listen to all of the informative Deborah Doctor interviews at DeborahHealthReport.com. Schedule an appointment at DemandDeborah.org.